July 4th, just a few days away. And I'm like, probably not a lot of people, I love July 4th. I know some people say it's too hot, you can't do anything. It's okay, I love it. I love the, the cookouts, and we do a fish fry every July 4th. I look forward to that. I love fireworks. I, I still love shooting fireworks and watching fireworks. Uh, I guess I'm still a child in heart, but I love, I love that. I love all the patriotic music that is around July 4th. Uh, a lot of the songs that we sing every year uh, about our country, because we get to celebrate the birth uh, of this great country that we're a part of. Well, this morning, kind of introduce my, my, my sermon, I want to uh, give you a story. A story about how one of those patriotic songs that we all sing every year, how it came to be. The year was 1893. A group of New England area school teachers and college professors decided they were going to take a cross-country road trip. No, let's, let's scratch that. A cross-country train trip because cars hadn't been invented yet. And they wanted to go out west. And they had all these places they wanted to visit. Well, one of the places they wanted to visit was Pikes Peak, highest summit of the southern front range of the Rocky Mountains. 14,115 feet. These girls made this trip all the way across country to see that. Now, me, that's where it would have stopped. I said, okay, that's beautiful. I got it. Let's go to the next place. I'm a, I'm a beach person, not a mountain person. Well, these girls, not only do they want to see it from afar, guess what? They wanted to go to the top. Again, I would have called time out and said, girls, what is that on top? We've been in that all winter long. Why in the world would we want to go up top in all that snow? I'd have tried my best to talk them out of it. Uh, Jack and Dana Gibson in first service just got back and they visited Pikes Peak last week and there was still snow on top of the mountain. But these girls were bound and determined to go to the top of this mountain. So, <laughs> they loaded up, not in a van, in a prairie wagon. They all piled in the back and off they took up to the top of this mountain. They thought. Got to the point where the prairie wagon could not go any further. And again, I would have said, that's it. We gave it a college effort. We need to go back down. Not these girls. So they piled out of the prairie wagon. This is true. Hopped on mules and took mules the rest of the way to the Vidal. Now, I'm not going to ride a mule anywhere, especially not on mountain range. But off they went on these mules, and they finally make it to the very top. Cold, and Jack and Dana said last week we went up there, it was cold. Cold, exhausted, tired, they finally made it to the top. But what did they see when they looked out? That. It was worth the trip. These girls got to experience and see the awe and the glory of God's creation. And one of the girls sitting up there who made that trip to the top, 
is a girl by the name of Catherine Lee Bates. And she was just so moved by what she saw. She wrote in her little journal that she had with her. She said, all the wonder of America seemed displayed here. So she later returned from her trip, uh, went back. She was a a school uh, college professor at a small college in Massachusetts called Wellesley College. She got back and she could not get off her mind what she had seen, the things she had seen on her trip. So one night she began to write a poem, a poem called America the Beautiful. And of course, we all know that now is a song that we sing almost every July 4th. Just sung it in the first service. But she wrote America the Beautiful. And when you think about those words, and we all know the words, you get to that part of the uh, poem or song where it says, America, America, God shed his grace on thee. Now some, for some of us older, I'm hearing Ray Charles sing it in the back of my mind right now, but God shed his grace on thee. Well, this morning... Instead of focusing on why America needs God's grace, and it does, we all know that. And instead of spending the whole time in prayer asking God to please shed his grace again on America, we're not going to do that. No, we're going to look at the promises from God's word. And I want to twist that phrase around just a little bit. And I want to talk to you this morning about how God has shed his grace on me and how God has shed his grace on you. We're going to be looking at the words of Paul today. But before we get started, let's talk a little bit about grace. What does grace mean? Well, I learned as a child in this church years and years ago that grace acronym, God's riches at Christ's expense. That's what grace stands for. And there's a lot to that. Um, Someone once said, grace is when God gives me what I don't deserve or can never repay. When God gives me what I need but don't deserve, it can never repay. Um, Our pastor had a great definition in the sermon series that he just finished up. Said, grace says, uh, define grace as God's blessings through Christ to people who deserve his curse. Uh, I think that's a lot of truth to that. But I want to give you a new, a new definition of grace. Grace is the face God puts on when he looks at my failures, my faults, and my flaws. James Merritt said that, pastor in Georgia, man, I have a lot of respect for. That speaks to me. Especially when I think about my failures and my faults and my flaws. I don't think I'm the only one in this um, group today that gets upset when my team that I'm pulling for doesn't play well. You know, especially those Clemson Tigers, when they do a bad play, I'm like, man. Sometimes I throw stuff, you know. I just start shaking my head. Maybe it's... uh, Someone that uh, I know or maybe even a child and when they do something wrong, they fail, they, they have this major failure in their life, you just kind of drop your head and you just shake your head and you're just like, I tell you, I don't know what I'm going to do. Well, you know, that's not the face God puts on. When God sees you with your failures, when God sees you with all your faults, 
And when God sees you with all the flaws that you have in your life, he has a face of love, a face of kindness, a face of compassion, a face of forgiveness. In the midst of all the things I do wrong in my life, God doesn't just strike me down. He loves me and he extends grace to me. See, God doesn't relate to us based on our goodness. There's no one in this room good enough. The Bible says we're all filthy rags before God. God doesn't relate to us based on our goodness. He relates to us based on his grace through the blood of Jesus Christ. You need to understand when you become a follower of Jesus Christ, when you surrender your life to him, you are and dwell with the Holy Spirit, you are covered with the blood of Jesus Christ and you are as righteous as you will ever be. So we can relate to God not based on our goodness, but based on the blood that covers us. The New Testament talks about grace. Over 155 references about grace throughout that, uh, throughout those books. And of those 155 references, 130 come from the pen of Paul. See, Paul cannot even begin to think about salvation apart from the grace of God. Remember, Paul, a murderer of Christians on his way to Damascus, on the road to go and arrest and kill more Christians, encounters Jesus Christ. And because of the grace that God extends to him, he, came, he went as a missionary, he departs. Went as a murderer, he departs as a missionary. God, God radically changed him. And see, Paul, Paul truly, truly experienced grace, and he never got over that fact. And he wrote time and time again throughout his letters. Ephesians 1, Paul writes that God lavished the riches of his grace on us through Christ's blood. In Ephesians 2, we learn that grace is a gift from God that is unmerited, that is undeserved, that is unearned, and is unlimited. He wrote in Romans 4 that where sin increased, grace increased even more. He wrote in Romans 5, we learn that God's grace came by one man, Jesus Christ, and overflows to the many. He wrote in 2 Thessalonians 2, we learn his, that his grace gives eternal encouragement and good hope. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul wrote, there was God's grace that was with him throughout his ministry. And we come now to another passage that Paul writes about grace. He's writing it to one of his protégés, Titus. You see, just a little background. Paul, Paul was coming to an end of his ministry. His days on the earth were numbered. It'd just be a short time before he departs to, to heaven. So he's been training up two guys in particular. Timothy, who he sent to Ephesus and Asia Minor to help some churches that were really struggling. A lot of false teaching, a lot of things going on wrong, unorganized. And so he sent Timothy to Ephesus to help these churches. And then he sent Titus to the small island Crete, which is in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. Again, there were churches going there that were in trouble, just unorganized, uh, needed, needed some structure, needed some uh, good teaching. And so he sent Titus there. Now, 
I've been in ministry now for 17 years. And I can tell you that ministry, we don't just sit around and sing Chris Tomlin songs all day long. Ministry is hard. Uh, ministry can be very, very messy. And, you know, as a, speaking for a pastor and I speak, speak for these other pastors, you know, sometimes <laughs> we've been beat up. We just need some encouragement. And I think that's where Titus was. I think Titus rough trying to get these churches organized. And so Paul said in his letter of instructions that he gives them, he talks about elders and overseers and deacons and all those things. He puts in this four verses, four verses that I think he put in there to remind Titus and to encourage him. So uh, you can look in your Bible there or on your phone, but I have it here on the screen for, for us to follow. <clears throat> we'll go at Titus chapter two. Beginning in verse 11, 11 through 14. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. Well, this morning I want us to unpack this great, great passage. And it is a great passage. And before I get started, what I love about this passage, it's one sentence. That's all it is. See, Paul, like me, is the master of run-on sentences. I always had a problem with that in school. Paul just gets it all out there. Forget periods. I don't need period. I got things I want to say. But we're going to unpack this. And I want to give you four aspects as we go back and look verse by verse at just some amazing things about God's grace. So the first thing I want you to see is that grace saves us from sin's penalty. Again, going back to the first verse, Titus 2.11, it says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And I want you to see that when Christ appeared, he came to present salvation to all. You see, up until that time, what we knew about Christ was from the Old Testament prophets. Uh, but this time, Christ was, God was going to reveal himself through Jesus Christ to mankind. So he departed from the glories of heaven, put on the robe of humanity, born in a manger in Bethlehem. And Jesus Christ presented through his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, salvation for all. You see, Jesus Christ was grace. See, the grace of God is more than a divine attribute. It's a divine person. Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is not only God incarnate, but he was grace incarnate. And Christ came to this world to present himself as a sacrifice for your sins and my sins. See, according to Romans, <coughs> according to Romans 3, we're all sinners. 
And according to, according to Romans 6, we deserve death and hell. That is the penalty for everyone because of our sin. And Christ presented himself as a sacrifice. As a sacrifice to pay that debt we could not pay. That penalty that we deserve. Christ took it on when he died on the cross for our sin. I love what uh, Paul said to, to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2. Um, 2 Timothy 1, he said, he has saved us and called us to a holy life. Not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. But has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. You see, Jesus Christ presented himself as a salvation. It said, bringing salvation for all people. Now, let me talk about that just for a second. Because this does not teach a universal salvation. Make sure you understand that. At some point, everyone in this room, the days of our life will end. And what awaits us is one of two things. For those who've given their life to Christ, who've chosen to be a Christ follower, follower, the glories of heaven await them. For those who have rejected God's grace and God's free gift of salvation, eternity in hell awaits them. So that's not what this verse is saying. So it doesn't refer to universal salvation, but rather to the universal opportunity for salvation. See, all the ground at the cross is level. It's available to anyone who'll come to him. So there's this presented salvation of Christ, that he presented himself as a sacrifice. And there's this provided salvation because Christ took the debt. He took the penalty on my behalf. Grace is free, but it's not cheap. Jesus paid it all. Just like the song we sung years ago, Jesus paid it all. He paid for my sin penalty. You see, no one, nobody else has ever died for your sins. Nobody. Nobody. Nor has anyone else's payment been accepted for your sins. Jesus Christ provided that salvation through the grace, his grace, and God accepted that on our behalf. See, Paul, yeah, he just he could not stop talking about grace. Even at the Jerusalem Council in, in Acts 15, when they're trying to decide if Gentiles can, can come to faith in Christ and, and, or they have to got to do all the things of the law. And Paul's saying, no, no, no. Paul finally just says enough and says, but we believe. But we believe that we will be saved through what? Grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. So Paul understood grace. He knew grace. Because it's grace that saves us from sin's penalty. We deserve death and hell, but because of God's presented and provided salvation through his grace, we're free. I don't know about you, but that's, that's good news. But let's continue as we go to the next verse and we learn another aspect about God's amazing grace. And that is grace strengthens us against sin's power. Going back to next verse, verse 12, says, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, 
and godly lives in this present age. See, in verse 12, Paul writes about how God's grace should change you. Again, go back to Paul. On his way to Damascus, a murderer returns as one of the greatest missionaries and church starters of all time. Why? Because he was changed. He was changed by Christ. He, he truly experienced the grace of God that was extended to him. He knew what he had done. He knew what he deserved, but that grace was extended to him. But you see, that grace ought to change you. And I love what Warren Wiersbe said, and this is not in your notes. You may want to write it down. The same grace that redeems us also reforms us. And there's a lot of truth to that. This grace redeems us, reforms us, reforms our lives to make us godly. And how does it do that? As you go back to this first, first thing you see grace, is that grace trains us to renounce sin. In Jesus Christ, God breaks sin's power and dominion in our lives and gives us a new nature that desires the things of God. At least it should. If you call yourself a Christian and you don't desire the things of God, you need to go back and revisit your decision. It should have, there should be a change in you, a new creation. What the Bible says. You see, salvation is not only a change in position. We're now in a right standing with God because of what Christ has done. We, we have been set free from the slavery of sin that we all were imprisoned for. So not only is it a change in position, but it's also a change in attitude, a change in appetite, a change in ambition, a change in actions. As a follower of Christ, I know now what it means to have a Christ-like attitude. Now, sometimes I'm guilty of not having that, but I learned even as a young RA that I have a Christ-like attitude for all people. How do you do that? How do you do that? It's through grace, through salvation that God allows you to begin to change the things that you want, the things that you think you need. Your attitude ought to change. Your appetite ought to change. Not for the things of this world, but the things of God. Your ambition should not be to climb the ladder of success. It should be to get closer every day to the Lord Jesus Christ. Your actions ought to be actions of a Christ follower who loves all people. There ought to be a change in your life. And grace trains us to renounce sin. It wants us to usher us to a life of purity, a life of righteousness. We are saved by grace. We are saved from the power of sin in our life. And grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and world pa passions. And I love what Paul said, and I hope I can get here one day. I'm not there yet. But Paul said, but whatever I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. We would say today as garbage in order that I may gain Christ. Wow. That's the attitude that's been changed. That's the ambition that's been changed because of what Christ has done in us. Grace strengthens us against sin's power. It, it trains us to renounce 
sin. It also trains us to refuse self. You see, for many people, and maybe some still today, the person that rules your life, that decides what you're going to do with your life, is you. Self. Self is on the throne of your life. And I'm here to tell you, you will fail miserably if you live your life that way. It is only by taking self down and putting Christ on the throne of your life that you'll find any type of success. And I love what what John MacArthur said, and he's right. When we try to say refuse self and not let self come back out and gratify um, with the things of flesh, grace does not grant permission to live in the flesh. It supplies the power to live in the spirit. Now listen to me. I still hear people today. And they say, oh, Shannon, I, I'm not under law anymore. I'm under grace. And that's true. But it doesn't give you the license to go out and do what you want to do. And do all these things of the world. And then when you finally stop, you ask for forgiveness. And then you go back and do it again. No, that's not. That's not what grace does. It doesn't give you permission to do that. But what it does, as you are a follower of Christ, you have been indwelt with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit takes residence in you, and the Holy Spirit is there to give you the power to live in the Spirit. Spirit, fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It allows you to have those kind of things in your life. Because self always wants to get back on the throne. It's selfish. It wants to be gratified with all the things of this world. Refuse self. See, when grace comes into your life, it ought to change your heart. It ought to change your head. It ought to change your habits. It ought to give you a love for God and a hatred for sin and self. Well, this, again, is a hard thing for a lot of people to do. They can do it in spurts, but then because they're selfish, the self comes back out wants to be gratified. So how, how do we say no to sin? How do we say, how do we refuse self? How do we keep self from taking over? How can we practice self-control? Well, I came across this years ago, and this isn't the answer of all things, but I found it to be very helpful and very practical when we're fighting this battle and we're trying to refuse self and self just keeps coming back up. David Jeremiah said this is his 6C method. Now, this isn't really... It's in rocket science. It's just six steps. We'll start with C. So that's, that's about how in-depth it is, all right? But I've had this, and I go back to it all the time. First thing he said was, determine to bring every thought and habit under captivity to Christ. See, some of you may have been like me years ago. I had a lot of stinking thinking in my life. And that stinking thinking needs to be gone needs to be replaced with the things of God. And how do you do that? How do you bring a thought? How do you bring a habit under captivity to Christ? I tell you how, through God's Word. Not only reading God's Word, but meditating on God's Word, memorizing God's Word. That's how you get the things of God into your mind and how you bring things under captivity. The second thing he said was confess it. Confess to God in a prayer of repentance. When the self shows back up and you do what you shouldn't have done, confess that. There ought to be conviction in your life to begin with when that happens, but 
confess that with a prayer of repentance. And I go back to John, 1 John 1, 9. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. That's what God's word says. So bring every thought and habit under captivity. Confess it to God and claim the victory from God based on his great and precious promises. I have to remind myself when the world has beat me up, and trust me, it does, just like it beats you up. I have to remind myself when things aren't going well that you know what? I am still a joint heir with Christ and I am a child of the King. And that gets me through a lot of things. It ought, to get, it ought to make a difference. The promises that we have, the old saying, I've read the back of the book and we win. That's how I get through some of the things in this life. I claim that victory from God. That victory because he has saved me. I'm a joint heir of Christ and I am a child of the King of Kings. Number four, confide this matter to a friend who will serve as your accountability partner. Now listen, you need to be wise in who you choose. This is not something that you, uh, you know, just tell anyone who's going to tell everybody else. No, you need to find some, a brother, a brother that loves you, a sister that loves you if you're a girl. And, and he can come alongside you, he can put an arm around you and encourage you and say, you know what, Shannon, you're going to make it. Somebody's going to pray for you. Somebody that's going to maybe give you godly counsel when you need that. But we all need that accountability in our life. The next step, continue no matter what. Don't give in. Don't give up. Even if you have all these failures along the way. Don't you give in and don't you give up. Talking with a man uh, Friday who's probably days away from death. And we're talking about this as I shared the gospel with him and talked a little bit about my life. And I said, brother, I want you to understand I, I'm not perfect. I'm far from that. In fact, if I had to describe my life, I tell you what I am. I am a work in progress. Many days in my Christian walk is three steps forward, two steps backward. But I know that I'm making progress. And yeah, I have failures just like you do. But don't you give up. When you've blown it, I mean blown it, don't you give up. Don't you give in. You keep going. You continue. You continue. And the sixth step, God's grace is stronger than your weaknesses. And some of us have some really, really, really bad weaknesses. His blood not only forgives you, it cleanses you from all sin. Now, again, this isn't rocket science. These are simple, practical steps. And if you're having trouble with self, if it's hard for you to refuse self, if self wants to get back on the throne, you may want to jot these down in your phone. Just go back to them. Remind yourself. Remind yourself. So grace trains us to renounce sin, to refuse self, but also helps us reveal, reveal sacredness. In Jesus Christ, God's redeeming grace breaks sin's power and dominion in our lives and gives us a new nature, a desire for holiness. It says in that verse, it is by grace that we can live upright and godly lives. We can all do that, but it's going to take God's grace. See, I, sometimes I think of my life as a computer and just like your computer at home, we get viruses and we get all this spam and everything else. But see, if you think of your life as a computer, 
is by his divine grace that Jesus Christ completely reprograms our life's computer, reformats it, reprograms it. He deletes all those previous files all that had all the programs filled with malware and viruses and spam and all those things that are harmful. He, re, he removes those, deletes them. They're gone and replaces it with new program of his divine truth and his righteousness. So for some of you younger ones that understand computers, that's, that's a good way to think about it. That's what God's trying to do. He is trying to delete the mess in your life and reprogramming your life with the things of God. So not only has grace saved us from sin's penalty, and not only does grace give us the strength we need to stand up against sin's power, thirdly, in verse 13, we see that grace will separate us from sin's presence. The Bible says, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, just in the last verse, it talked about living in the godly lives in the present age. Well, that's a reminder that there is a future age to come. And it talks about waiting for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. You see, we know, we know what to look for, and that's his coming. Jesus Christ came the first time to take my sin away from me. He is coming the second time to take me away from all sin, and I long for that day. And I'm, I may not make it. He may not come in my lifetime, but I know even when my life is over, I know what awaits me is an eternity in a place that's beyond comprehension. And I know one thing that won't be there, and that's sin. God will separate me from sin, and it's through his grace. Grace appeared in verse 11, talking about his first coming. And grace appears in verse 13, talking about his second coming. And I tell you, the older I get, the more and more I long for heaven. You know, I, I, I understand more today than I've ever had that, you know what, I'm just a stranger in this world. This is not my home. I'm just a stranger passing through. There's a home waiting for me. And I so long for that day when I can see my Savior face to face. So we know what to look for. We also know who to look for, and that's our Savior, Jesus Christ. One day, by the grace of God, Jesus is coming back to take us away from the presence of sin. Until then, like the father of the prodigal son, we watch and we wait. Keep watch. Keep looking. And it ought to, it ought to have an impact on you knowing that he can return at any moment. He can return before I finish this sermon. It ought to have an impact on you. Believers should always be expecting his return and live like those who one day will see him face to face. So not only has grace saved us from sin's penalty and not only has grace strengthened us against sin's power, not only will one day grace will separate us from sin's presence, but finally in verse 14, God sends us 
away from sin's possession. Again, going back to verse 14, last verse of this passage. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. And the first thing I want you to see as you read this verse talking about God's grace and how God sends us away from sin's possession is that Jesus Christ has paid for us. That's why sin has, no longer has dominion in our life. Jesus redeemed us. Now that's a theological term that sometimes people try to make more complicated than it is. I tell you what redemption is. It means that Jesus literally bought, not brought, bought you back from the gates of hell. Because of our sin, that's what we deserve. Death and hell. But Jesus came, died on the cross to redeem us, to bring us back to him. Bought us back. And I know this. He paid much too high a price for me. When I think about my life and what I've done and that Jesus Christ would die for me, go through the one of the most horrific, gruesome deaths one can ever imagine. Christ did that and he did it willingly for me. Why? His grace, his love for me. I can't understand that. I can't even begin to comprehend that. But he paid the price for me with his death burial and resurrection we also see in this verse that Jesus purifies us it says he redeemed us from all lawlessness to purify for himself a people of his own possession Jesus purchased us to purify us sin makes us guilty and dirty grace makes us innocent and clean 1 John 1 7 says but if we walk in the light as he is in the light we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin and the verse that Paul wrote that many quote often one of his most famous verses 2 Corinthians 5 21 for our sake he being God made him Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. I have to remind myself, it's not about me. It's about him. It's about what he's done for me. And I'm righteous and I'm in the right standing before God Almighty because of Jesus Christ. Because of the precious blood that he shed for me. Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, took on the sins of mine. Of mankind, of me, my sins, your sins. He took them all. Everything you've done. Even those things your spouse may not know about. Even those things you are so embarrassed about that's hidden way back in the closet of your life. Jesus took them all. And he died on the cross. He paid the price for us to purify us. But also, as we look at that verse, Jesus prepares us. Because it says... Purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. Now let me make sure we understand that. God's grace, God's salvation should always result in good works after. It's never do good works to gain a right standing with God. It's never do good works to have salvation with God. No, 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 no. 
It's when you experience God's grace and when you are born again, when you are saved, there ought to be a desire in your life afterwards to want to do good things. Someone once said long ago ago that helped me, he does the saving, I do the serving. Jesus Christ saved me. He saved me. He set me apart. He put in me a desire to want to do the things of God now. Yeah, I still fight with sin just like all of you do. But my desire is to bring glory to the name of Jesus Christ. I want to see his kingdom advance. I want to see more people come to know Christ. That's what I want to see. And it's, go back to that famous verse that he wrote in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. He says it here perfectly. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You know, I'm God's masterpiece. I'm his workmanship. He took a lot of work for me. Listen, I know what's inside of me, but he did a lot of work. And he created me. And he redeemed me. He saved me. I'm covered with the blood of Jesus. And now I'm prepared for those good works that God has set for me. So Jesus paid for us, purifies us. He prepares us. Again, sin no longer has possession of us. It's been bought by Jesus Christ. We've been cleansed by his blood. And he prepares us to go out and make a difference for the world. You know, in closing, I talked at the first of this sermon about a mountain, Pike's Peak, where someone traveled to the top and was changed by what they saw. But I want to conclude my sermon talking about another mountain, Mount Calvary, where Jesus traveled to the top so that we can be changed by what he has done for us. You know, I've been offered a lot of things in my life. You know, you you have to. And there's always somebody, I got a deal that you can't refuse. But listen, I'm going to give you the best deal you could ever possibly get. As I conclude this message thinking about the grace of God that we've experienced through Jesus Christ, I want to talk to you real simple about the great exchange. This is for you. This is for me. You say, well, Shannon, what, what is this great exchange? Why, why is this such a great deal? Why is this something I can't refuse? I'll tell you why. Number one, for your sin, God is willing to give you salvation. Yeah, you know, as we've been talking about this sermon, there's some things you've done in your life that you are so ashamed of. Sin. Sin separates. Sin brings death. But God says, you know what? For your sin, I offer you salvation through my grace. Through my grace. I'll exchange all that sin. I will forgive you of your sins. I will cleanse you of all the unrighteousness. For your sin, I offer you salvation. But not only that, for all your failures, and trust me, I've had many in my life, God is willing to forgive 
See, the Bible says that God is able to forget as he forgives your sins. He separates, your, your sins are, are, are cast to the bottom of the sea. They are, they are as far apart as the west is from the east. It is God's grace that he allows forgiveness. So for your sin, the exchange is salvation. For your failures, the exchange is his forgiveness. And for your guilt, and all the things that you are ashamed of in your life, and all the things you wish you could redo, all that guilt you have, God's willing to give you grace. What an exchange. Your sin, his salvation. Your failures, his forgiveness. Your guilt, his grace. How in the world can you sit there and say no to this amazing grace that God has shed for you? Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this word. Lord, thank you so much for grace. Lord, thank you that you just don't strike me where I'm at because of all my failures and my faults and my flaws. But Lord, you, you extend grace. You extend compassion. You can extend love to me. Not because I deserve it, but because of who you are. And Father, I pray just as Paul was radically changed by the grace he experienced, the Lord, we will be people who are radically changed because of the grace that you have extended to us through Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for what he did for us. Thank you that he redeemed us, brought, paid a price, a much too high price to bring us back into a right standing with him. Lord, help us to be changed. Lord, I pray that people will not have to ask if we're a Christian. I pray that they'll see in our face, in our actions, in our words, that we are a follower of Jesus Christ. His name I pray, amen. Well, you know, some of you may be uh, sitting there. And God, through his Holy Spirit, speaking to you.